If you have your Bible, you can make your way over to Matthew chapter 13. We're picking up where we left off last week, Matthew chapter 13. Last time, we looked at the parable of the soils in the first part of Matthew chapter 13, in which Jesus teaches about different ways people respond to him and his message. And we want to be good dirt People who respond by believing what Jesus says, accepting Him and His teaching into our life, following Him, allowing His good word to sink into our life and develop deep roots. Well, today we're going to look at the other parables in Matthew chapter 13. And these parables all have to do with the kingdom of God. Now that term, kingdom of God, it shows up a lot in the gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And theologians have written thick books about what the kingdom of God is all about. But for us, and how Jesus uses this term, it's pretty straightforward. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, refers to the coming of Jesus Christ and the establishing of his salvation and his leadership, his rule, his lordship among us. The kingdom of God starts with Jesus himself entering into our time and space as Messiah. The kingdom then grows and expands as people come by faith into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, being born again by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us to life and grows this new life and kingdom in us as we follow Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of a different nature than earthly kingdoms. It's a spiritual kingdom and it supersedes all earthly kingdoms and will one day replace them all. Very simply put, the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ and all that he's doing in our life and in this world. That's the kingdom of God. Well, let's begin in verse 24 of Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Jesus begins this parable with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. The other parable, parables in this chapter also begin this way. This, first, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are one and the same thing. These terms are used interchangeably by Jesus, so don't get hung up on, well, what's different between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Nothing. They're the same thing. Next, it's important that we understand what Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to. 
He's not saying that the kingdom of heaven is like this man who plants seed. Instead, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like this whole situation that is being described in the parable. Parables like this one, which begin with the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like, are usually making reference to the whole parable and not just the first thing mentioned in the parable. In this parable, Jesus is again using the imagery of a farmer planting seeds in his field, similar to the parable of the four soils that we looked at last time. But this parable has a distinctly different story that it's telling and a different truth that it's teaching. So here's the story. A farmer planted good wheat seed in his field. But his enemy secretly came along at night and planted weeds in the farmer's field among the good seed. When it was discovered what the enemy had done, the farmer's servants asked him if he wanted them to go through the field and pull out all of the weeds. And the farmer told them to let the wheat and the weeds grow together because of the danger of unintentionally uprooting some of the wheat in the process of removing the weeds. At harvest time, he said, the harvesters will separate the weeds and the wheat, throwing the weeds into the fire and bringing the wheat into the barn. Bible scholars believe the weed being referred to in this parable is probably darnel, which is a weed that looks and acts a lot like wheat while it's growing. In fact, one of this weed's nicknames is Wheat's Evil Twin. Darnel was also known in the ancient world as delirium grass and the plant of frenzy. And the reason is because of a fungus that grows on the kernels of darnel, which, if eaten, can cause a person to feel dizzy, off-balanced, and nauseous. The word darnel actually comes from a Latin word meaning drunk. Because darnel looks so much like wheat and the roots of the two plants can become entangled when growing close together, it's difficult to remove the weeds from among the wheat. Considering its negative effects on people if eaten, farmers obviously didn't want darnel mixed into their wheat harvest. So efforts would be made at harvest time to separate the two. Apparently, deliberately sowing darnel in someone's wheat field was punishable under Roman law in those days. So the situation that Jesus is describing here in this parable is actually a familiar situation for those who are listening. This is an interesting parable that lends itself to a number of possible interpretations and applications. We need to be careful, though, and try to determine the meanings that Jesus intended for the parable and apply it to our life in a way that's consistent with that. Jesus explains the meaning of this parable down at verse 36. So I want us to jump down there and look at the meaning of this parable while it's still fresh in our mind, and then we'll come back and we'll look at the next parable that takes place after this one. So if we skip down to verse 36, 
It says, Then he, Jesus, left the crowd and went into the house. His, his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. The real disciples of Jesus, those who are really following him, believing him to be the Messiah, they come to him and they ask him to explain the parable to them. And as we noted before, the true disciples of Jesus are not those who understand everything, but those who are persistent in seeking to understand. And here we have them doing just that. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7? He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I want to encourage you to keep asking and seeking and knocking. The Lord will bless you with a growing understanding of himself and his ways. I want to remind us, though, that these are words of continuing effort. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking is the idea, the tense of these words in the original language. They require effort and persistence. See, expecting the Lord to just drop his wonderful wisdom and insights into our brain as we lazily spend our time scrolling through our Instagram and TikTok, that's not the way it works. We need to really ask and seek and knock and keep on asking and seeking and knocking. And the Lord will reward our efforts to know him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to grow closer to him. When we reach toward him, he always reaches toward us. In James 4.8, James said, Come near to God and he will come near to you. No one who really wants to know the Lord will ever be denied. He is generous and kind and he, and he invites us all to come to him. Well, verse 37, Jesus continues, he says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. So here Jesus identifies what's what in this parable. The farmer is the son of man, Jesus himself. The field is the world. The good seeds, the wheat, are the people of the kingdom, the followers of Jesus Christ. The weeds are the people of the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds is the evil one, the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, meaning the consummation of the present era that we are living in when Jesus Christ comes back to complete the establishing of his kingdom over all. The harvesters are the angels of the Lord who will carry out the work of gathering and separating the weeds and the wheat. Now, a couple of quick notes about interpreting parables before we continue. This parable is a good illustration for us of how things do not always mean the same thing across parables. The context determines the meaning of a thing. For example, the seed in the parable of the soils, which we looked at last time, 
was the message of the kingdom. In this parable, the seed refers to people. Specifically, the followers of Jesus. The parable of the soils, the field was the people who heard the message of the kingdom. In this parable, the field is the world. Now, I point this out to help us not fall into the trap of interpreting the meanings of the parables by using the faulty rule that a certain thing always represents or means a particular something whenever it appears in a parable. For example, I've heard people say, yeast always represents evil and corruption in the Bible. That's not true. We need to take the context into account to determine the intended meaning of a thing, of a word. Another thing to notice is that not every element of the parable is assigned a meaning. Some elements of the story are just elements of the story. For example, everyone sleeping while the weeds were being planted is something that we might assume to have some kind of symbolic meaning. But Jesus doesn't say anything about that in his explanation of the meaning of this parable. We need to be careful in our interpretation of the parables. Not every element of the parable should necessarily be assigned a meaning. Some things may be just parts of the story, and they should be left that way. I encourage us to use restraint when interpreting parables. I would rather leave some possible interpretations and applications and meanings of a parable unsaid rather than make a parable say something that it was never intended by Jesus to say. So verse 40, Jesus continues and he says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus ends this parable the same way he ended the parable of the soil, saying, whoever has ears, let them hear. In other words, as we talked about before, we need to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. There's more to the story than the story. It means something. We need to think about it, consider it, chew on it, take it to heart. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, we want to be careful to not take unwarranted license with parables in how we understand and apply their meaning. But here are some things that we can take away from this particular parable. First, during the days of Jesus, some people were wondering why he was not more forthright about identifying and eliminating the weeds around him. Some of the religious leaders immediately come to mind as weeds that we might think Jesus would like to pluck out of his field. Other possible weeds. Do you remember 
the story about James and John asking Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire and consume the Samaritan village that refused to welcome Jesus in Luke 9. You remember Jesus rebuked his disciples for having such a thought. It's like they said, do you want us to pluck those weeds out, Jesus? And Jesus said, no, leave those people be. Not all of those people are weeds, and you're not qualified to figure out which ones are which. Wait until harvest time when all things will be brought to light. Jesus called out error and hypocrisy at times, but his focus was in large part on cultivating the field, teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He didn't spend his time on some kind of witch hunt seeking to identify false teachings and false teachers. He spent his time planting good seed and seeing to the growing and maturing of that good seed. There was a risk of unintended damage being done to the wheat by trying to remove the weeds at the present moment. Jesus instead knew that the true nature of the plants would be revealed at the harvest time and they would be separated then. And so we're cautioned about how to deal with what we think are weeds. There's the potential of damaging the wheat while trying to remove the weeds. And we can misidentify wheat as weeds, can't we? Especially in the early growth stages of the plants. I'm sure I was thought to be a weed at one time. I'm sure I'm still thought to be a weed by some. I think I'm a weed sometimes. The servants of the farmer are encouraged to continue to cultivate and care for the plants in the field and wait for the harvest time when the farmer will have his harvesters settle things out. Too often, we can get caught up in a witch hunt of sorts, trying to identify and eradicate the weeds from among us when our efforts are better spent planting good seeds and tending and caring for them as best we can. Should we turn a blind eye to obvious false teachings and false teachers and blatant sin in the church? Well, of course not. But we need to be very careful about how we proceed in dealing with these things, lest we do more harm than good with our efforts. Another thing that comes out of this parable is the evil one, the devil, is at work spreading his poison and counterfeit truth throughout the world. That is not something that we should be surprised by or frightened by. Harvest time is coming when all will be put right. Everything that causes sin and does evil will be removed, Jesus says, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. There is the wonderful promise here of the final triumph of the kingdom of God over all that is wrong in this present world. Now 
Now let's go back up to verse 31 and take a look at the next parable that Jesus told. He told them another parable. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. The mustard seed was proverbial for its small size. The mustard seed is not literally the smallest seed, and that's not what Jesus is saying as much as everyone's like, oh yeah, the mustard seed, that's, we all know that's the little dinky one. When grown, it becomes a large shrub-like plant, several feet tall, sometimes as high as 12 feet or so in height. One of the tallest of the garden plants. So large, in fact, that birds can perch in its branches. And so the kingdom of heaven, it may appear to have an insignificant beginning, but it will grow and fulfill all of the Lord's promises, bringing life and blessing to many. Jesus himself, the beginning of the kingdom of God, appears to be insignificant and weak. But just like the mustard seed, it grows and becomes the largest of the garden plants. So the day is coming when the kingdom of God will surpass the glory and the power of the mightiest kingdoms of this earth. On a personal level, we measure success by what we see with our eyes. But Jesus teaches us that we need to see with faith the kingdom of God uses a different metric, a different measuring system than this world. This world sees a mustard seed and scoffs. The Lord sees what that mustard seed is going to become. The Lord looks at our life that same way. He doesn't judge us simply by what we are right now. Instead, He sees what we are going to become, what He is making us into. He knows what that mustard seed of the new life of Christ in you is going to become. He's doing a beautiful work in you. Trust Him. Verse 33. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This parable teaches a similar idea as the one we just read about the mustard seed. This time, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a tiny bit of yeast that is added to a large batch of dough, and it works its way all through it. Again, the, the kingdom of God appears to be a small, insignificant thing. It is just Jesus and his message at this point. And not long from now, he is going to be killed. And then it will look like even the small influence that he appeared to have was short-lived. It will look like he has gone down in embarrassing defeat. But Jesus is going to come back to life. And his influence will spread and change the world.
this parable, it also illustrates how the kingdom of God works in the present world. It's, it's like yeast working quietly but powerfully, transforming the dough. In the kingdom of God, it didn't enter into our world in a showy display of power like a conquering army. Instead, it entered unassumingly. But it's powerfully changing lives from the inside out. Thirty-four. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Characteristic of Matthew in his gospel, he points out here once again how Jesus fulfills prophecy. This time he points out how Jesus' teaching method was a fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah. This is a quotation from Psalm 78, verse 2. The use of parables was a regular part of the way that Jesus taught. And Jesus brought to light spiritual truths not previously revealed. Forty-four. We have to skip the explanation of the parable of the weeds because we looked at it a little bit earlier, remember? You guys are following along, right? So we got to hop down to 44 now. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. So in this story, a man finds a treasure buried in a field. And then before he pulls it up out of the ground, he goes and he buys that field to make sure that the treasure will be his. This treasure is of such great worth that he considers liquidating everything that he owns in order to obtain this field that has this treasure in it. He considers everything that he has a small price to pay for this great treasure. So the kingdom of God is of such great worth that giving up everything we have to obtain it is a minuscule price to pay in comparison. 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This parable is similar in meaning to the one that we just read about the treasure. In this story, a merchant finds a pearl of such tremendous value that he sells everything he has to buy it. The value of this single pearl far exceeds the combined value of everything else he has. And again, to have and to be part of the kingdom of God is worth far more than the combined value of all else that we have. Something that strikes me about these two parables, the parable about the treasure and the parable about the pearl, is the joy and the willingness of these people to give up 
everything they have to obtain the treasure and the pearl. Their possessions are not wrenched from their reluctant grip in exchange for these things. Instead, they willingly, excitedly do it because they know they have found something so much more valuable. Some people wonder why you have given up so much for Jesus. They don't understand, do they? What you have received in exchange. Verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish when it was brought When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. So in this story, fishermen use this huge net to catch all kinds of fish in a lake. And then they pull the net up to the shore, and they sort through the fish, keeping the good ones and tossing out the bad ones. And the, exp- and the explanation is given in 49 and 50. It says this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This parable actually resembles the parable about the wheat and the weeds, doesn't it? Sharing some common truths here at the end of the age the angels of the lord will separate the good from the bad the saved from the lost those who have embraced and followed jesus from those who have rejected him now i know this will sound very old-fashioned and out of touch with modern sensibilities and i don't really get any pleasure from saying it but there is going to be a final reckoning And we are all going to be sorted. And the only hope any of us have when facing that moment will be Jesus Christ. How we have responded to Him will be the determining factor of how we are sorted. Have you embraced Him and followed him or not. Verse 51. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. This question is addressed to his disciples who asked him up in verse 36 to explain the parable's meaning to them of the wheat and the wheats. And in 52, finally, he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. I think it's unfortunate that most of the English translations, they translate the the Greek here as teachers of the law or scribes, 
Although that translation is technically correct, it, mis it misleads us because we automatically think of the religious leaders of that time who were opposing Jesus when we hear the word scribes, teachers of the law, Pharisees. The actual word here simply means one who instructs others. So, verse 52 should read as follows for us to better understand what Jesus is saying. Because he's not aiming what he's saying here at the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He's aiming this at his disciples who are teachers of others. It says, therefore, everyone who teaches others and has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Oh, that makes a little more sense. Because the other way it sounded weird, didn't it? Jesus is talking to his disciples here. Not the teachers of the law who are aligned in opposition to Jesus. His disciples who are to be teachers. They have treasures to share that are both old and new. Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, those who have embraced Jesus as the Christ, those who are his disciples, they have the benefit of both the old and the new. Jesus, he didn't abolish the law, but he fulfilled the law. In other words, Jesus is what the law and the prophets and the stories and everything else that's in the Old Testament was pointing to, illustrating, predicting, hoping for, preparing for. As his disciples, we have all of the scripture to draw from as a vast treasure trove of truth. And it all takes on this deeper, fuller meaning when seen through the lens of Jesus Christ. So in closing this morning, I'll ask you this question. What is Jesus worth to you? Is he like a tremendous treasure or a beautiful pearl worth far more than everything else you have? Paul tells us in Colossians 2.3 that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. Takes faith to see that, though. Takes faith to embrace Jesus as the Christ, the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures, the Son of God who's entered our time and space and died as a sacrifice for our sins to remove our guilt before God and give us a new life now and a future with Him in heaven. And I pray every one of us have the faith to do that and to see that and to embrace that. And so I want to leave us with this prayer taken from Ephesians 3.14 where Paul writes to the Ephesians and we're taking it as a prayer for us as well. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And let's close in prayer. Father, we... Thank you for your good word spoken to us today. And we do pray, Lord, and ask that you would give us the ability to understand and to take hold of your great truths, Lord, to know this wonderful love that surpasses understanding the salvation that you have given us in Christ. Enlarge Jesus in our hearts and our minds today, Lord. In his name we ask these things. Amen.